Burger. It's good to be back here. So occasionally in um, a whole variety of contexts, it'd be pop culture, varieties of different media outlets or conversations with your friends, you're going to occasionally hear comments that discredit the Bible, comments like it's full of historical inaccuracies, it's full of internal discrepancies, and over the last two years, last few years, the one that I hear come up uh, a lot is that um, you know, in these conversations around sexuality and gender that's going on in our culture and our culture wars, you'll hear a, a lot of times people will say, Jesus never said anything about sexuality, Jesus never said anything about gender, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so why are these Christians making such a big deal about it? And so, increasingly, these are the kinds of things we hear to discredit the Bible, to discredit faith in Jesus Christ, to discredit uh, really the foundations of what Christians hold to be true. And I want to start out here uh, this evening. I want to say that, um, you know, most people that uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ don't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of being convinced by a, a scholarly intellectual argument. Okay, and most people that reject the gospel or belief in, in Jesus Christ don't reject because of a scholarly intellectual argument. We're going to kind of come back to that point, um, but I do want to say that these arguments, two or four against, uh, four or against the, the, the Bible and its reliability, uh, do have an effect. Um, it has an effect on us as individuals, it has an effect on our culture. It can keep people from pursuing faith further. If they, if they hear an argument against the reliability of the Bible or if they hear an argument um, saying that it's, it's not credible, that can, you know, somebody that's seeking or somebody that's just kind of wandering could easily be pushed to no longer seek after. Um, and... and it just keeps people in a place of ignorance and weakness, especially if it seems like it's coming from a, a credible source. Um, so I think it's important to address them, and it's important for, for Christians to understand how to interact with some of these arguments, because we need to be able to give a, a solid defense of our faith and not feel like we're in a place that, that scholarship disagrees with. We need to have some confidence about the, the historical and intellectual reliability of the Bible. And so, um, you know, if we look at this passage, we see some... Jewish leaders, some experts, some people that were high up in the places of the Jewish culture, coming to Jesus, and they have a different interpretation of the Scriptures. And so the fact that there are different interpretations, different opinions about the Bible, different opinions about what it says, it's not new. This is nothing new. Uh, Jesus and the apostles dealt with these kinds of things often. So one of the one of the arguments that you hear is that, you know, there were a lot of Christianities in the first century. There were a lot of different texts in the first and second and third centuries. But, you know, the one we have now was, was picked out because it was chosen by the people that were in places of power. And these smaller groups that weren't in power, their Christianities were discredited, their texts were discredited. Yeah, there were a lot of Christianities. There were immediately after, and you can see this in the New Testament letters, 
immediately after the, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the expansion of the gospel, you always have opponents coming up. You always have people wanting to use um, the opportunity to preach, to earn money, to gain money, to take advantage of people. So that's nothing new. That's nothing new. And so we'll look a little bit at today uh, why some of those texts and why some of those Christianities weren't accepted. So here we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees made up, um, they were amongst the rulers and leaders of the nation of Israel, but they sat at the top. The Sadducees were of the Levitical tribe, and they had the role of chief priest and all of the associated leadership around the highest levels of leadership because the chief priest was an inherited uh, position. Okay, it was an inherited position, so they could never be voted out. They always had this place of power, and the Sadducees did. They believed in the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, exclusively. So they were really conservative in what they allowed for the Bible, all right? And they didn't believe in the resurrection. This is kind of what they were really known for. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection, um, and so they were this very conservative sect. They held the highest positions of power. They didn't believe in the resurrection because most of the texts that refer to uh, resurrection as an idea in the Hebrew Bible is from the writings or especially from the prophets. And so they disregarded them. But this is who is leading Israel. These were the leaders. These were the chief priests and, his, and the people right around him. Okay, so they, they bring this question to Jesus uh, out of an effort to stump him or discredit him. Um, and it's this crazy question about, a, about uh, this woman that marries seven different brothers because each of the brothers that she marries dies. And so by the law of Moses, you're supposed to, a brother is supposed to take the bride of, of his brother if his brother died. And so that happens seven times. And so the Sadducees come up with this really unlikely scenario. And Jesus doesn't really even go into answering their question. He just says, you guys don't have any idea of what you're talking about. You guys don't know the Bible. You're in this place of position as, an, as a ruler for the nation of Israel, but you don't know your Bible, and you deny the power of God. And so, like then, we have people in places of our cultural leadership, scholars, that... that are articulating um, dubious statements and assertions from the standpoint of being scholars, from the standpoint of being learned and educated and leaders in New Testament scholarship. And so what I want to do tonight is um, look at three different categories of ways that contemporary scholars distort and undermine uh, the New Testament especially, and we're going to talk more tonight about the Gospels. And so these three ways are, all have to do with the text. And so the first way is the content of the text, the text, the textual content, the, the meat and potatoes of the text, what the text is saying. So content, the second one is textual formation. How did the New Testament come into being? Okay, so what's in it? and how it was formed, and the third one is the framework. So whenever we read anything, we always go to a text with a lens, all right? 
And that lens is going to, it's going to inform us of what we're looking for. It's going to inform us of the questions that we're asking for the text. And so depending on the lens at which you're reading the Bible, you could come up with a whole number of different assertions or statements or questions that maybe the Bible really wasn't even intended to address. Okay, so we're looking at the content of the text. We're looking at how the text came into being, its formation, and we're going to look at how we approach and view the text even before we start reading it. So it's a lot of material, but I'm just going to do some overviews. If you want a more descriptive and textual and technical argument, I uploaded a seven or eight page document on this stuff with all kinds of reference and books you can read for your own if you want more detail outside of what we're going to address probably in the Q&A time. So the first one, textual content. What's in the text? So you have misinterpretations or you have just flat out misstatements that, ought, that sometimes come out of ignorance. So misinterpretation, you read something, you come to a conclusion that the text isn't really asserting, or you just say something about the Bible that just flat out isn't true, maybe because you don't know. And again, the example that I see commonly these days about this is that Jesus didn't say anything about gender or sexuality. Well, first of all, um, so there's three errors here in that statement. Um, the first one is it's, it's based upon an a and a perspective of the Gospels. And so when we say the Gospels, we mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. Well, the Gospels, it seems like people think that the man Jesus actually wrote them. But the Gospels were not written by Jesus. I mean, the New Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, Neither of them were Jesus Christ, but they make statements in their writings that say, this is what Jesus said, okay? When you look at the rest of the New Testament, the epistles and the book of Revelation, which have a lot more to say about gender and sexuality and marriage and all these things, none of the, Jesus didn't write any of those books either. None of the books in the New Testament were written by Jesus. They were all written by people that knew Jesus or by people that knew people that knew Jesus, all right? And they are all making statements about Jesus. And so the first error with this statement is assuming that, the, that the, the guys that wrote the Gospels have statements about Jesus that are more true than the guys that wrote the epistles. And that's a, you, you can't make that assertion because they're all the same type of guys. The epistles are talking about Jesus in the same way that the, the Gospels are talking about Jesus. Just because they're saying different things or more stuff about some things than others doesn't change the type of writing that they're writing about. They're all making statements about Jesus. You can't throw out the epistles and hold on to the gospels because, again, they're all making statements about Jesus. The second error is that Jesus did address gender and sexuality. When the, when the um, disciples came to him and asked him about divorce, he said, he referred back to Moses in the law and said, Moses instructed that a male 
husband and a female wife get married, and it's God's intent that the husband and wife, male and female, stay together. Well, once Jesus referred to the law of Moses, all right, he referred to the whole law of Moses, and he referred to the law of Moses as being authority. And so if, 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 the, if, if Jesus is looking to the law of Moses for authority, the same way that Peter, excuse me, that, that Paul does in several of his letters, and that Peter did as well, that means that Jesus is affirming the authority of the law of Moses, which, you know, for those of us that went through the Pentateuch, it says a lot about sexuality and gender in the entire law of Moses. So Jesus is saying a lot about male and female and sexuality. The third thing, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law not to obliterate it. Jesus affirmed the authority of the law of Moses. So this is kind of like the second point. But again, Jesus is affirming the authority of the Old Testament scripture of which he says a lot about gender and sexuality. So that's the first error, content. Right? And it's just one statement. But these statements are made by people in places of authority, scholars or journalists or historians, biblical scholars even, and they just haven't done their homework. That's often the case. The second thing, textual formation, how the text came into being. So again, oftentimes refer, you, you hear about these lost Christianities or these lost texts. The New Testament contains texts that they know were used broadly throughout the church in the first and second centuries. So at the time of the apostles, when the Texts were written, and the century immediately after. These lost texts, so the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, um, these are texts that they know came much later. These are texts that they know are dependent upon the Gospels themselves. So in, in that they were written depending on the four Gospels means that the four Gospels came earlier, and that these texts weren't really communicating anything unique. In fact, what a lot of these texts do is they, they say things different. And so they weren't excluded because they were minorities. They weren't excluded because they were persecuted. They were excluded because, one, they weren't used in the first century of the church. Most of them weren't used or seen or even existed in the second century of the church. They came much later. So they weren't accurately reflecting Christianity in its earliest days. And a lot of their statements differ from the statements made by the four Gospels themselves, which are known to be credible in terms of their dating and in their origins and in their use throughout the first century. So they were excluded not because of any power issues. They just weren't correct, accurate, and many of them were just frauds, again, trying to draw people away from Christianity into an alternate Christianity that's a different Christianity altogether. The second thing that you hear one, I mean, there are many things, but I'm just kind of highlighting a few to give us a sense that you, we really need to do our homework. The other thing that you hear is that the, the stories you find in the New Testament, particularly, again, the Gospels, um, they're not original stories. They've been stories that, that somebody heard about, and then they told somebody, and then they told somebody, and eventually got written down. So it's, they, they compare to like, and the scholars will actually write this. 
It's like a game of telephone. Say, well, a game of telephone, you know, if, if, if we all sat in a big circle and somebody tells a story into the ear of the person sitting next to them quietly, so only that first person hears, and then that second person tells the story to the third, and it goes on, and by the time you get to number 50, the story's changed. The names are different, the circumstances are different, the plots, nothing is usually the same. That is how oftentimes scholars describe how the New Testament came into being, okay? So the problem with this is that there's some chronological snobbery in that there's an assumption that ancient civilizations and cultures didn't have a method for standardizing information and, 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 and content that they knew needed to be held onto, needed to be accurate, and needed to be passed down from generation to generation. Okay? Those kinds of, of things, having a standard body of teaching that needed to be held to be correct, and that was passed down from generation to generation. Those kinds of needs and things have been around for millennia. And ancient cultures and civilizations had processes to standardize information and to pass it on reliably. And a great deal of research has been done on this, especially by a gentleman named Richard Bauckham out of, out of Oxford, so a solid scholar. Uh, he's done a lot of research on this. His book is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I have, I have several of these books here if you want to take a look at them later. Um, and it's in its second edition now. And let me just point out one chapter of his book. It's actually two chapters that really highlights um, why the New Testament, especially the Gospels, are really historically accurate. This is a fun one. So we all know that over time and places name popularities change, right? I mean, that's, everybody knows that. There exists a lexicon of names from Jewish Palestine around the first century. That's, it's, a complete, it's just a secular database of names from that period. It's, it's, it's 3,000 names. It's a lot of names. What Richard Bauckham did was he took that database of names and he determined, okay, here are all of the popular names in Jewish Palestine around that area. And then he took the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and said, here are all of the names of people in the four Gospels. And guess what? The name, the, the list of popularity rankings of names in the New Testament four Gospels is the same as the ranking of the popularity of names that exist just in that in culture generally. So the first most the six most popular names in the four Gospels are the same as the six most popular names that existed in all of the literature that we have of the 3,000 names for Jewish Palestinian people. It would be impossible, okay, so if, if the Gospels were written at a much later date or in another geographical area, somebody's just inventing these stories out of thin air because they didn't remember the original ones, it would be impossible for anybody writing Gospel in another location or another date to come up with 
randomized names that actually was consistent with the popularity of the names at the time in the first century of Jewish Palestine. Does that make sense? Does everybody kind of get that? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You could not replicate that. So this shows, and, and the, the use of the names, and this is one of the chapters that I was referring to, the use of the names in the four Gospels, they are there because they are people that gave eyewitness testimony to the events surrounding Jesus and the first century church in the book of Acts. And so the, the names of those people are important. And there's, there's lots of names. In the Bible alone, there's 93 names that are given as associates of Paul. So there's lots of names in the New Testament. And so it shows that these named eyewitnesses and the stories they told are historically accurate. They couldn't have just made it up. So that's textual formation. The last one, textual framework. So when we read the Bible, we have a lens. You know, sometimes we, we have a question that we want the Bible to answer. Sometimes, you know, especially if we were younger in the faith, we just open it up and we'll say, hey, let's see what God has got for me today from here. You know, I've got this question. I need some wisdom. Maybe the book of, uh, you know, First Chronicles has some answers for me. That's not a very good way to read the Bible, but sometimes we do that. Um, and sometimes we take, we, we, we ask questions of the Bible or expect things of the Bible that it's not really meant to address. Okay, the, the, the Bible, like any other book, has a message, and it has a purpose, it has an intention. Okay, so for those of you all that have taken or are, are taking the interpreting class, or maybe you've taken a hermeneutics class in Bible college or seminary, you know that the first task of a reader is to determine what the author is saying. You got to determine the author's meaning, and then from that, you start asking questions. If you're not clear on the author's purpose and the author's message, you're probably going to misinterpret what is being said. So, two things about the, um, the lenses. One of the arguments is that, you know, there's the, the Gospels are just full of um, internal discrepancies. Hold on just a second. I think I missed a, skipped a point. Yeah, the first point is that, you know, there's, there's over 5,000 copies of New Testament texts. It's, it is the most copies of, in existence of any piece of ancient literature, right? So 5,000 pieces. And if you compare these 5,000 pieces... There's a lot of errors and differences. Okay, they're small. It's like, I mean, it's what you would expect. I mean, if you've got 5,000 people making copies of handwritten texts over the first few hundred years, you're, it, they didn't have digital, they didn't have electronic, you're going to have some errors. So there are a lot of errors amongst those 5,000 copies. But what's amazing is that there is a lot of consistency Okay, hardly any of the heirs have, will effectively change the message. But again, it's thrown out there. 5,000 copies, there are thousands of heirs, it's unreliable text. The second thing is that if you look at the four Gospels, they'll say, you know, there's a lot of discrepancies in the four Gospels. Some, people, some of them, you know, Mark had Jesus dying on the day of preparation of Passover. John had Jesus dying on the day of Passover. Uh, why are they different? 
Okay, and there's other little ones. That's probably one of the major ones, if not the major one. There's other, there's other little things. Well, if you consider that the four Gospels were written by four authors at four different times, talking to different groups of people for four different audiences, you're going to get four different perspectives. You know, when I read the newspaper, I try to do it you know, a few times a week, half an hour. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the, 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 the New York Times. That gives me kind of the spectrum in, in terms of newspapers. And then I read, you know, the Star Tribune. Okay, and oftentimes the three, art, three papers, or at least two, will have the same stories, but it's different, especially if you go to the opinion page, obviously. Okay, we, the argument there is that, that if there's any differences at all, that means they're historically inaccurate, and you can't rely upon them to be factual. Well, you know, in reality, we would all doubt the truthfulness of four different stories from four different people for four different audiences talking to four different groups, if they were all identical, we would say, wait a minute, there's something fishy going on here because nobody ever has the same exact stories. But what's true generally throughout all four of the gospel stories is that there is an amazing amount of consistency about who Jesus was, the types of things that Jesus did, the miracles Jesus performed, and certainly his death, well, his, 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 his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The, the Gospels are very clear and very consistent in the fact that that happened. That happened. Those things happened. And so if you, a lot of these scholars that are trying to discredit the Bible are coming to, to it with a lens or a framework that says if there's any error at all, it blows out of the water the reliability of the Bible. We can't take anything in it as true. And it's just too rigid of a lens. It's too rigid of a framework. And the, the Bible isn't meant to be read that way, okay? It's not a, it's not a piece of a science journal, it is, a, it is a text, and some of it's like journalism, a lot of it's like history, some of it's epistle, obviously different types of literature. But as a whole, it's incredibly consistent and reliable. So, you know, as, we, as, I, as I conclude here, we go back to the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And a lot of the scholarly opinion, a lot of, a lot of scholars do great work, <laughs> The scholarly opinion around the Sadducees is that, is that their position on the resurrection really wasn't developed from the text. Obviously, Jesus said, you guys don't know the Bible. If you don't, know the, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you clearly don't know the Bible. Scholars believe that it, it, their position on the resurrection was based on their love for power. Their love for power. Because really, you know, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the masses believed in the resurrection they didn't believe in the resurrection because of their love for power. It's a subjective reason. And oftentimes, our unbelief or skepticism around the Bible is not based upon what we understand reliably from the Bible, but it's based upon some sort of subjective reason. I, I searched and searched and searched for this, this quote today, but I couldn't find it. But at some point in the last six months, I was reading uh, this person's, his own, his own memoir, his own story. He said, you know, um, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus. But if I'm honest with myself, it's not because I have a, 
a thought-out intellectual reason. He says, I don't believe in the Bible and I don't follow Jesus Christ because if I did, I'd have to change my sexual lifestyle. And I just don't want to do that. And so that's a subjective reason based upon his desires. He didn't want to change who he was. He didn't want to change his lifestyle. He knew that if he became a believer in Jesus, he'd have to change his lifestyle. And so like the Sadducees and like this man, oftentimes um, we don't believe because we really don't want to change, which I think was the subject of, our, of the sermon last week. It's not objective, it's subjective. It's based upon feelings and desires of the persons themselves. But these types of arguments can then support it. Like, okay, I don't want to change my lifestyle, but I don't want to tell my friends that. So I can say, you know, there's a lot of good scholarly reasons why I shouldn't believe in the Bible, and you can list them all off. And the, and the person and some of the, some of the stuff that I've listened to from podcasts and, and stuff in uh, various media outlets um, defending uh, the, the, the progressive gender agenda or the homosexual agenda will say these kinds of things, not because of the credibility of the history or of the scholarship, but because they don't want to change the lifestyle. And so these arguments can be used to support. So that's why it's important if we're a, a skeptic or a seeker. If you're feeling this tension and you sense that you know, maybe there's something in Christianity for you, but you hear these arguments, it could hold you back. The scholarship trying to discredit the Bible isn't substantive enough. In fact, I would say it's dubious. You shouldn't be held back. Don't let these arguments hold you back. They're not as, they're, these arguments aren't what they seem. My encouragement would be for you to do your own research and to look at it yourself, look at both sides, look at various sides to determine what you believe to be true. And as Christians, I think these things can harm us in several ways. Um, sometimes we're in places of weak faith. Maybe there's a lifestyle that we don't want to change. We've committed our lives to Jesus, but we're confronted with something. And, and sometimes in places of weak faith, we can take some of these arguments because it's something that can support us moving away from, from what Jesus is asking for. And they can be dangerous to us in that way. But I think it's also important for us as Christians to be clear on what these, these arguments are and how to defend ourselves against them because... Uh, the scriptures call us to be ready to give a defense or an apology for what we believe. Okay, oftentimes that's simply a testimony. I was out with lunch with a, with a neighbor friend of mine uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I had asked him why he had rejected the faith, and he told me his story. Then he says, hey, how did you become a pastor? You know, so I, for 30 minutes, I just unfolded the story and inserted as much about Jesus and the gospel and my sin as I could, <laughs> right? So sometimes that's the way we defend our faith. Other times, we have these kinds of arguments that get posed against us. We, we should be able to, and it doesn't take much work to familiarize ourselves with some of these basic ones to say, you know what? Uh, I, don't, I have found that those arguments to be dubious and, and unreliable. And so we as Christians need to be able to defend ourselves in our culture to remain strong, but also to continue to be a witness to progress the gospel. 
But again, the substance of our faith is not dependent upon our view of inerrancy, right? Inerrancy meaning there's no errors in the Bible, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says, uh, go and spread the gospel of inerrancy, all right? I try to stay away from that argument because it's filled with so much baggage about what inerrancy means. I don't even use that term, all right? doesn't matter what your view is on that. I believe that the Bible has a message and an intent, and the books all have messages and intent, and those messages and, and intents are true as communicated by those books. It doesn't matter if we think that there are errors or discrepancies. It doesn't matter what we think are Jesus' view on gender or sexuality. What, is de- what our faith is dependent upon is one thing. Is the Death is, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ true? That's what Paul said. This is the linchpin of our faith. And if it's not true, we of all people are the most to be pitied. The promise of God to bring the dead back to life is, is the promise of the gospel. That is the linchpin of our faith. So the Jewish leaders and the lawyers and the scribes, this passage is in a list of a place it's in a it's a it's in a in Mark Jesus is addressing all these various scholars and leaders and showing why they are off base they missed it all the professionals missed it and honestly it was unclear in the old testament the resurrection which is why it surprised even Jesus's followers after he had told them multiple times i'm going to die and then i'm going to raise from the dead <laughs> Multiple times. And when it happened, they couldn't believe it. But that's what happened. And the important thing is, the eyewitnesses that the gospel accounts describe say that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. And the history and the scholarship, if you dig into it, gives evidence to these things. And that's the story that, if true, makes all the difference in the world. That's the story that we believe. That's the story that we have hope in because it's the promise of a life beyond the life here on earth now. And it's the story that reveals the power of God. But more about that on Sunday when we celebrate Easter and the resurrection. So let me say a quick prayer real quick, and then we'll do some Q&A. Lord God, uh, thank you for this word. Thank you for just showing that there were, in Jesus' day, just like in our day, people that doubted and misinterpreted and uh, maligned the Bible. God, our prayer is that you would help us to understand what the Bible is saying with clarity and hold on to it and, and to look into it and to research it with, with, with vigilance because it is really a matter of life and death. In your son's name we pray. Amen.